Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us to come and rest, uh, to rest in the work that Christ Jesus has done on our behalf, to rest in our relationship with you, our Father. And we pray, Lord, that as thankful Christians, we may eagerly learn more about you and about your word and about your will for our lives, that we may follow you joyfully in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, young people, this is your opportunity to head out. And for the not-so-young people, we will be continuing (laughs) chapter 27, which is found on page 935. which is of the sacraments. And what we looked at last week was kind of where we came up with this word sacrament. Uh, It's a word, as we noted, it comes from Latin, and it's a military oath. So a sacrament is that commitment that you make to the one that's in authority over you. It's not a word that's found in the Bible, uh, but it's a word that, that comes into our theological language from the culture in which the New Testament writers uh, lived, uh, or the, the New Testament Christians, I guess I should say, or the early Christians, let's put it that way. The, the culture in which the early Christians lived understood that this military oath idea was something that they were incorporating into their understanding of these sacraments. Uh, now, as the, as the theology develops, the Roman church develops a sacramental theology that includes a total of seven sacraments. And basically, to be assured of your standing with Christ, uh, the sacraments go from infancy to death. You begin with infant baptism and you end with last rites. And so remaining faithful within the sacramental system is what keeps you uh, assured of your standing with Jesus Christ. So when the Reformation comes along, the Reformation, we really... And, and again, remember what the word means. To reform means to build again, to to find out what is this, this you know, at the core of theology, at the core of the church. One of the things that really uh, was meaningful for me in my own theological journey was reading Calvin's Institutes. And Calvin wrote the Institutes to the king of France, because France was a Roman Catholic country, and what Rome was saying is that all these guys that are calling themselves reformers are coming up with a new religion, uh, that, that the Roman Catholic Church is the depositor of grace. Uh, and, and so in order to be in grace, you have to be in the Roman Catholic Church. And so Calvin's Institutes throughout, he's making the point very, very clearly and, and he'll say it repeatedly throughout the Institutes, this is not a new religion. 
This is what the church has always taught. And that's why if you read the Institutes, he quotes uh, the church fathers very, very heavily to make his points. Uh, and what he's trying to demonstrate to the king of France is this is historic Christianity. Uh, this is what the church has always believed. The Roman Catholic Church has gotten off track. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has ended up teaching another gospel, but here's what the gospel has always been in the church. And, and so that's his point in the Institutes. I personally, uh, I, I really gravitated towards that because uh, I was coming from a background in which uh, I did not have a very good grounding in church history. Uh, my, my grounding, uh, was, was probably the 20th century. Uh, that was kind of what we tended to focus on in the background that I came from, uh, was kind of the, the 20th century and the guys who were writing in the, in the, you know, early 1900s and, and later on. Um, and, and so when I saw that, that, you know, I have a connection with these Scottish martyrs. I have a connection with the martyrs of the early church. There is this one gospel uh, that has always been taught throughout church history. Uh, I found that very appealing. Uh, it not only helped me understand the scriptures better, but it also connected me to a faith, a church that was far, far bigger than the United States in the year 1995, or whenever it was that I was uh, becoming persuaded of Reformed theology. So, so because of that, I say all that to say this, the Reformers really had to go back to the basics. And so that's why the very first uh, chapter of the Confession is, what are the books of the Bible? And if you're familiar with Roman Catholic theology, you'll know they had to answer that question, because the Apocrypha had been added uh, to the Bible. And so the Roman Catholic Church was, had, had added these other books and said, these are canonical, these are authoritative, just like Genesis is authoritative, just like the Gospel according to John is authoritative. So the, uh, I've forgotten some of the names of the uh, apocryphal books. The Maccabees, thank you. <laughs> the book of Maccabees, uh, is equally authoritative. Uh, and, and so the Reformers, uh, and, and this is throughout, this isn't just Westminster, uh, Luther had to do it, uh, all of these Reformers are having to say, okay, what are, if we're going to say that we're bound to the Scriptures, what are the Scriptures? And, and so if you're familiar with Martin Luther and, and his study uh, on that, you'll know that he did not like the idea of James, the book of James, uh, being a book of the Bible. He called it an epistle of straw, uh, and it's because James is so focused on you need to work out your salvation. Uh, you know, show me, show me. You say you have faith, great. Show me by your works. Show me that faith. And Luther believed that the law and the gospel should be completely distinct from each other, and that we now live in the gospel. And so, a New Testament book that is so heavy on the imperatives, uh, as the book of James is, uh, has no business being in the New Testament. Uh, so, you know, th this, and, and obviously I don't agree with Luther on this. Uh, I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, or I'd be Lutheran. Uh, but, but, uh, 
my, my point is that we really had to go back to the basics. What are the books of the Bible? Uh, and so that's the first chapter of the confession is listing out the books of the Bible. What is our relationship to the Apocrypha? And so the confession's got it in the first chapter. It says the apocryphal books are not the inspired word of God. They may be helpful, but they are no more helpful than any other man-made or man-written document. Uh, so, so Westminster is making a very strong point regarding the canon, C-A-N-O-N, uh, the authoritative books of the scripture. Well, so, so this, this coming back to the basics, coming back to the foundations, becomes a central matter here in chapter 27 because Roman Catholic salvation, the, the whole, the, the Christian life, the way that we get into heaven is very sacramental. Uh, you, you really need to participate in at least six of the seven sacraments because the ordinary person doesn't take holy orders. Uh, so, but, but participating in at least six of those seven sacraments faithfully is what makes you to be a good Christian. Uh, and frankly, that was the charge that Rome made against the Protestant Reformation. They said, listen, if you're saying that you can be right with God simply on the basis of faith, then you are going to get rid of all uh, incentive for doing what is good, for doing good works. You need to have that as an essential element of salvation in order for people to truly pursue good works. They've got to understand that you've got to perform good works in order to go to heaven because if you disconnect good works from your salvation, or, or from the basis of your salvation, if you disconnect good works from your salvation, then you're going to end up with all these Protestants that just say, hallelujah, praise Jesus, and live however they like. Now, fast forward the clock to five, six hundred years after the Council of Trent, uh, all these all these sorts of things are taking place. If we're looking around us today... Do you think that the average Roman Catholic Christian, the average generic Roman Catholic Christian, is someone who is completely obsessed and taken up with working out their salvation in fear and trembling? Not at all. For most people, it's a cultural thing. I was born a Catholic, I'm going to die a Catholic. And that's as deep as my Catholicism goes. For the vast majority of Roman Catholics, now I want to be clear, I have met exceptions. I have met Roman Catholics who are very thoughtful, who, who really understand, who really pour themselves into the theology of the church and trying to uh, live it out faithfully. But I will say, and I, I think by the general acclamation of everybody in the room, all of you guys who know Roman Catholics uh, know that generally speaking, Roman Catholicism is simply, this is what my mom and dad are, this is what my cousins are, this is what my aunts and uncles are, this is what I am. And, and you go to Mass, you do the, you do the stuff, and you move on, and you're, you're done with your, with your Christian thing. Uh, so, so I find it 
interesting that the charge that Rome made against the Protestants, if they left off this sacramental theology, the charge is something that I think really exemplifies Roman Catholicism today, uh, which is a very formalistic uh, approach. The, the good thing about Christian evangelicalism, and particularly evangelicalism in the West, uh, have you ever heard someone saying, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That is really, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple and basic way of articulating what the Protestant Reformation is about. Uh, what biblical Christianity is about. Uh, and, and the danger of saying a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is that we can say, well, the church doesn't matter, uh, which the scripture clearly teaches that, that we are expected to live within, we're to exercise our gifts, we're to build one another up, uh, all of these things. Uh, our Christian life is to be lived in community. But... At the core of it is not the community. At the core of it is your personal justification. Have you repented of your sins? Have you fled to Christ for salvation? Do you recognize that you are one of those that Paul speaks about when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? When you hear that word, do not point your finger over to any person sitting anywhere remotely near you. Because that's not the point of that verse. The point of that verse is to say, I have fallen short of the glory of God. And I need Christ's merit. Uh, I need Christ's righteousness. I need the work that Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross, dying my death. The death that I deserve to die. Uh, because of my sin, so that I can have his life. It's a, it's a very personal connection. And so in doing that, um, Westminster is breaking from this sacramental theology. And a lot of the reformers did that. A lot of the, a lot of the Protestant Reformation was a break from sacramental theology. So you've really got three big figures here. One is a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, another, the other two are guys that we probably recognize uh, that are more famous for us, Luther and Calvin. And, And Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin all have three very different positions as to what these sacraments are. And and so I'm wanting to, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here, but I'm wanting to make a point that this, the, the, examining what the sacraments are is absolutely essential because it is at the core of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism at its core is sacramental. And so we need to, or the, the reformers had to, come along and really examine this issue of what is a sacrament. And so Zwingli espouses a position of the sacrament is a memorial. Uh, There is no 
And, and so we'll, we'll get into this in the second section. This is all intro to, to section two of chapter 27. Um, but there's no relationship between me being baptized and my salvation. It's simply a public testimony. If I'm not baptized, no big deal. I mean, I should be because I should be willing to make a public testimony. Uh, but, but if it just works out that I never do get baptized, it's not a big deal. Baptism is simply a public testimony. In the same way, the Lord's Supper is purely a memorial. Uh, and, and so the, you know, taking the Lord's Supper, it's a, it's a nice thing to do. It helps jog my memory. Uh, it, it reminds me of who Christ is. But, but that's it. That's what is there in the sacrament is, is strictly this is a memorial. For Luther, he comes up with this doctrine. Stand. Whatever, however you spell it, consubstantiation. <laughs> I got, I got, I got sidetracked about three quarters of the way through the word. Um, consubstantiation. Uh, so, so for Luther, he's trying to avoid. You remember last week I said transubstantiation is there are two miracles that take place. The first is this piece of bread turns into the body of Christ. The second is the body of Christ looks just like bread. Uh, this glass of wine turns into the blood of Christ. The second is the blood of Christ tastes just like wine uh, and looks just like wine. There are two miracles that take place regarding the substance of, of what we participate in in the sacrament. And so Luther says, no, the bread doesn't turn into Jesus Christ. However, he's wanting to hang on to that language of this is my body. And so he develops the doctrine of consubstantiation. Con meaning with. So with the substance. As opposed to trans, which anybody who's awake today ought to know what trans means. (laughs) Trans means becoming the other. Uh, So transubstantiation, the bread becomes the body. The, bl- the wine becomes the blood. It's transubstantiated. Uh, for Luther, it's consubstantiated. It's together with. And so the body of Christ is together with the elements. So we would say that the elements, yes, in a way they are the body of Christ, but no, they're not, because the body of Christ is present. And Luther's words are in, with, above and under the elements. So you cannot divorce the element from the body of Christ. The body, Christ's body is present in, with, above, and under the bread. Uh, so the bread doesn't become the body of Christ, but with consubstantiation, you can't distinguish the two. You can't pull it apart at all. And then Calvin comes up with the uh what what obviously i believe is the biblical uh answer which recognizes that there is a real grace that is being communicated in the elements 
There's a real grace. There's something real and spiritual that is happening here. And so that's what our second section uh, focuses on. Um, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So the sign of baptism what is the physical element in baptism water so the sign is water what is the spiritual signification what what is the thing being signified in water Washing. Water is the washing. It's cleansing. And so then let's take the Lord's Supper. What is the physical sign? Bread and wine. And what is the thing signified? The body of Christ. Broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. And our communion of that. We need the body of Christ broken for us. My identity is here in the body of Christ broken. My identity is here in the wine. So it's it's not just Christ's body, but also his body in specific relationship to his atonement. Uh, it, it's, you know, when, when we take the bread and the wine, we're not partaking of Christ's teaching ministry, primarily. Uh, we're not partaking of Christ's healing ministry, primarily. We're ta- partaking of his atoning ministry, his body broken, his blood shed. Uh, so we're really zeroing in on the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so, where Westminster and and Reformed theology in in more broadly, where they come down here is, and and so let me uh, before we before we go further, let me um, maybe point out how these are practical. Um, can someone read for me Acts chapter 22 and verse 16? And then as someone is looking that up, someone else read for me Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. Acts 22, 16. So, if you're going to be taking the Bible word for word, and you read Acts 22.16, then how is a person saved? Being baptized. 
Why are you waiting? I mean, there's the first altar call. (laughs) Why are you sitting in your seat waiting? Come forward. Be baptized and your sins will be washed away. So Acts seems to be associating baptism with salvation. So are you familiar with any Protestant communion that teaches that doctrine? It's called baptismal regeneration. Well, so I would agree that there are places, you know, uh, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and thou shalt be saved. Uh, that, that clearly connects salvation to, uh, the, the profession of faith. But, and, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to take all of these passages of scripture, all of the passages to say scripture doesn't, uh, contradict itself. Uh, it's not like in one place, you need to be baptized. Okay. Well, so yes, I, I would agree that there is a a link between the things signified. And the sign. That, that's the point that I'm wanting to make. Is there's a connection between the thing signified and the sign. So the thing signified in washing, the sign is water. And that connection is so, so close that what is spoken of in one case, um, yeah, so, uh, the other passage was Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. And I'm running out of time again. So someone read Ephesians. So, so the action of the word and the action of loving your wife is this washing, this cleansing. Now, Paul certainly is not saying that there's a literal, the husband is supposed to give his wife a bath. Uh, that's not the point uh, of, of his statement there. His point is to say, this thing is so closely associated with this thing that we can speak of this thing when we mean this thing. I, a, another example uh, is... Uh, well, that, forget it. That's a bad example. Uh, <clears throat> the point is that there is a close relationship between the spiritual reality and the thing signified so that we can be speaking about the thing, about the sign, which is be baptized for the remission of sins. 
And we're talking about, we're, we're not saying baptism is what saves you. What we're saying is that this baptism is the indication of that washing and that cleansing. In the same way with the Lord's Supper. Uh, so, where we are coming down, where, where the scripture, I believe, is, is coming down, or, or, or a proper application of this, is, is it okay for me to have a baptismal service where I use, uh, uh, what's that stuff that comes in the squirt bottle that cleans your hands? Uh, sanitizing. Yeah, that's a symbol of cleansing. Is it okay if I baptize using hand sanitizer? Why not? It symbolizes cleansing. It's not water. So you telling me water saves? So I, I agree with you in that, uh, and, and so that's a little off track, but I do think the point is accurate, which is that when Paul is speaking about the resurrection in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he does say, this is, this is your body that's going to be raised. Now, I'm, I can't tell you what it's going to look like because the raised body will be as different as the full flower is from the seed, uh, but there's still a connection uh, between the plant and the seed. Uh, and so that's Paul's point in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But, but the, where I'm wanting to end up with is recognizing that there is a connection. And so, Lord willing, next week, <laughs> well, uh, as long as I can avoid all the intro stuff, we'll get into this. Um, the, the issue is instrumental. Uh, and, and that's the language that differentiates these three positions. Uh, so these are the three main positions. Either it's a pure memorial, uh, or there is some sense in which the body of Christ, or, or Christ Jesus, is really and truly physically present in, with, around, and under the elements, or something in between. Uh, and that's what Calvin tries to articulate, that's what our confession uh, tries to articulate, is that there is a connection between these two, so that we can say of the one things that belong to the other. Uh, but these two are not identical. Uh, baptism, the fact that you have been baptized does not in and of itself mean that you're going to heaven. Uh, there are plenty who are going to be baptized, who are going to take that visible sign of the church upon them that at the last day are not going to be in heaven with Christ. Either it's a false profession at the outset or it's an apostasy uh, later on. Uh, but baptism, while the New Testament uses language like baptism saves, it also is very clear that salvation is the work of God's free grace in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit applying the new birth to the sinner. Uh, and 
So we, we get into how these two things relate. So anyway, Lord willing, we'll pick that up next week. I've run over time uh, yet again, but uh, let's continue this next week. Let me go ahead and uh, close this with prayer, and then uh, we'll go into our time of fellowship. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do condescend to us. You give us these physical tokens. Because, Lord, so often we feel like we are apart from your grace, we're unworthy of your grace, and you call us to reflect on our baptism. Uh, It never was something that we earned. Uh, We feel that we're apart from you and distant and cold and dead, and you revive us in the supper. Uh, You you nourish us afresh. Uh, Help us, Lord, to make good use of these means of your grace. Uh, In Christ's name, amen.